0: Our first scripture reading this morning uh, is from the fourth chapter of the letter of Paul to the Romans, beginning on page 144 in the New Testament uh, of the Pew Bible. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
1: From the Gospel according to John, the third chapter. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, A leader of the Jews he came to Jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher who comes from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person Jesus answered him very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above Nicodemus said to him how can anyone be born having grown old can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Very truly, I speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven except the one who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. Into the den that is our week, we ask for ears that hear Your Word so many other words that rattle around us we are distracted by many things help us O lord to be attentive to the one thing that is needful even the words of christ our lord amen it is extremely to get lost in the weeds of paul's letter to the church in rome and with apologies to chris because it's almost impossible to read that with any sense of passion as it's part of a much longer theological text and we're stuck each week then with passages from Romans that begin with really useful words like therefore well therefore implies there was something else that we need to know to understand this part right or in today's case what then are we to say all of these individual passages that are short enough to be able to read on a Sunday morning are part of a longer set of puzzle pieces that keeps going back and begs for the antecedent. Perhaps it's helpful to understand in a larger sense why it was that Paul wrote this book. Unlike the other letters written to other churches and to individuals, Paul had no firsthand relationship with the church in Rome. He did not found the Roman church, It was a letter received by a group of Christians who only knew of Paul's reputation and had not yet met the Apostle. The book also serves, interestingly enough, as something of a fundraiser for Paul's missionary journeys. He's writing ahead to Rome with full plans to extend his missionary journey into Spain, And he is hoping, as he says in the 15th chapter, that his theological understanding will inspire them to generously support the next chapter of his missionary journey. So he's writing ahead, as he says in the 15th chapter, and I hope to spend a little time with you, but I'm just going to be passing through, raising a little money, because my goal is to go all the way to Spain. Paul does eventually make it to Rome, but he doesn't make it to Rome on his way to anywhere else. He arrives in Rome in imperial chains. He is a prisoner of the imperial guard for preaching the gospel. He is arrested and spends the rest of his days in house arrest, evangelizing the guards during his prison term. But this letter here to the Roman Christians, Paul's project is not just fundraising, and by the way, his project here theologically is not small. In fact, it is almost impossible to understand Christianity without what Paul is trying to do in this letter. Paul is trying to link together the vast and diverse arc of Jewish history into the conversion of Gentiles into Christianity. He is taking a history of a faith that was steeped in inheritance and real estate, the promised land, and he is attempting to graft these newcomers that were followers of Jesus into that same history of God's promise. Like I said, it's not a little project that he's embarking on here. Paul writes that Abraham was righteous. We, We all agree father abraham and had many sons and i'm one of them and then no we're not going to do the hand motions and he says that what identified abraham's righteousness was not what he did but abraham's faith that god looked at abraham's faith and his faith made him righteous now abraham also did many faithful things he left her of the chaldees and went to a land he did not know he awaited until he had a son with a couple of false starts that were not ordained by god but eventually he has isaac he even took isaac under the threat of killing him to the mountain there were many faithful things that abraham did but those were not the things that made abraham righteous god found his faith to be the core of abraham's righteousness Now, it's pretty clear that Paul, the Apostle Paul, did not have a copy of the Gospel of John when he's writing to Rome. The Gospel of John was not penned until sometime after, a few years after, Paul would have been writing to the Roman church. But the theme between Paul's argument about faith and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is quite similar. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus was all about inheritance. One inherited the right to be considered for the office of Pharisee. Certification to be a Pharisee required proper bloodline, proper birth. It was considered before one could even take the examination and hold the ongoing lifestyle of being considered a Pharisee. We learn later that he was not only just a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council. Of Jerusalem and so his birth his inheritance his bloodline was a core constituent to his very identity Nicodemus understood himself to be one of the inheritors of the promise to Abraham a promise that he understood as the Eretz Israel the land of Israel the promised land he had a biological and genetic responsibility to oversee it. So when Jesus tosses out Nicodemus's first birth as being irrelevant to God's inheritance, Nicodemus understandably bristles. I need to be born twice. I thought my first birth was pretty good, thank you very much. And besides, I'm a big guy. I can't go back into my mother's womb. Ha, 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 Nicodemus jokes. It was clear god favored nicodemus because he was first and foremost a good jew a descendant of abraham god especially loved nicodemus because he was a super jew he was a pharisee that's when G- jesus literally rocks nicodemus's world and it is then the most famous verse perhaps in all Christendom, as Kurtz points out. There are shorter verses from memory. If you ever did memory verses in Sunday school, you, you always like John, uh, John 11, 33, because that was Jesus wept. <laughs> or in 1 John, God is love. There are shorter verses, but the core of theology, as Chris pointed out, John three sixteen is kind of this centerpiece, which I would say even before John penned that verse in the mouth of Jesus, It was already understood by Paul when he's writing to Rome. And this is the word that rocked Nicodemus's world. God so loved the world. Not God so loved Israel. Not God so loved the descendants of Abraham biologically. Not that God had a particular affection for a promised piece of real estate that was promised to Abraham generations before, and those who were born into his lineage had a responsibility to take care of and defend. No, Jesus says, God so loved the world. What's more, Jesus pronounced that God's desire for that whole world was not sending his Son into that world to condemn everything that wasn't Israel, but that everything that wasn't Israel might also be saved. Linger over these verses for a moment and understand just how radical the implications were for Nicodemus and how radical they should be for us. What rattled Nicodemus was that Jesus' declaration seemed to be somewhat reckless. God didn't love Israel most, I mean, after all, they were Abraham's true offspring. They were the biological descendants of the inheritor of the promise of God. So much that even the old King James Version, the form that I memorized, the verse as a child, that God loves the world so much that whosoever, whosoever, translated as everyone, even keeping the whosoever kind of makes it special. Everyone sounds like, yeah, well, you know, just anyone. I wish to be clear here. In the words that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the rattle of God's love for the world echoes into our modern day and tells us this. There is nothing Christian about nationalism. Nothing Christian about nationalism and those who make idols of country or ethnicity or birth cannot claim consistency with the third chapter of John or with Paul's letter to the church in Rome any birth that looks back to the lineage and inheritance from the mother's womb is prioritizing exactly what Jesus is telling Nicodemus was wrong with his world. Think about the architecture of birth. In Obstetrics, in our first birth, in the water of the mother's womb, we arrive in the world seeing the face of our earthly mother, looking back to our lineage. What Jesus proposes is a second birth, not looking back, but looking above. That second birth sees the world comprised not of the horizontal boundaries of nation or neighborhood or precinct, or of blood or inheritance or tribe. No, the vertical view that Jesus says is our second birth is absolute dependence upon God our Creator that looks upon the world without horizontal distinctions. We adopt then in that birth what God truly loves. And What does God truly love? God truly loves all the children of the world. It's no accident that after Jesus shares this disputation with Nicodemus, we find him in the very next chapter, in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, sharing the transforming life and faith, and message to a multiply divorced, currently living with her boyfriend, Samaritan woman. You don't get more distant from a Pharisee than that. Jesus moves from a disputation with the Pharisee, saying, no, God loves the world, to stepping out into that very world and expressing in his own conversation with this untouchable the same love and grace he was describing to Nicodemus. It's also no accident that when Jesus is asked by a Jewish lawyer about what love of neighbor means, who is my neighbor, you end up getting a story not about a righteous Levite or a pious priest. You get a story about a despised Samaritan who forever bears the adjective good good samaritan something to the hearers of jesus words would have been perceived as almost a profane oxymoron because the boundaries of compassion that jesus is showing were not driven by the earthly categories of race or ethnicity or nation but by his understanding there was a compassion that moves like wind and blows where it needs to go, ignoring border, borders and birth and human categories, the Samaritan moving with compassion to care for one who was wounded by violence on the road. Also notice that the Samaritan does not immediately form a posse to go look for the bums that beat him up, there's somebody bleeding there's somebody wounded there's somebody who needs compassion and his move to compassion is why we call him good the Samaritan demonstrated love of neighbor directly as God defined neighbor as someone who just needed the healing compassionate balm of love now I know in some places among some people my addressing directly what I am expressing as an idolatry of nationalism may be offensive. It may be perceived as, oh my goodness, the pastor has gotten political. But I've been preaching long enough to know that when somebody says, Pastor, I think your sermon was too political, that's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for the words, Pastor, I don't like your politics. Because if it preached politics with which you agreed, you'd say, Oh boy, you really gave them the word today, preacher. <laughs> which brings me to my conclusion for today. By the way, in a conversation earlier this week, I pointed out that perhaps the most frequent lie of a preacher is the phrase, Which brings me to my conclusion. <laughs> it's all about tone. Because a careful reading of this passage from Romans and the larger text of the epistle and Jesus' disputation with Nicodemus contains not only deep theological reflection about geopolitical implications for what it means to be truly Christian, but also the very motivation for Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus itself. A, com- a conversation that is bathed in his love for nicodemus so much so that a few weeks later when the sanhedrin is up in arms over what jesus was doing it is nicodemus who takes a deep breath and stands up and defends jesus so much so that when jesus is crucified and considered a complete outcast and an abhorrent preacher it's nicodemus who steps forward and says i will pay for the funeral and he does he underwrites the cost of Good Friday. And if it wasn't for Nicodemus and Jesus had been born into an unmarked paupers tomb, the validity of Easter itself would be in doubt because at least because of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they knew where the body was going to be found and it turned out it wasn't. Any discussion, any conversation, any argument to disavow the worldview of another must be done if it is to be done Christianly in a way that shows the same compassion for the individual as the Samaritan demonstrated for the victim of violence on the road. That we are not basing any argument against Christian nationalism because we're somehow better Christians. But because we believe those who are misguided need our love too. There is nothing Christian about punching a Nazi for Jesus. Am I clear? That if we're truly born from above, that same faith should drive us to be motivated with love and compassion for the whole world. Even those whose politics make us uncomfortable. Uncomfortable that we engage them not to prove them wrong, but we engage them to embrace them as kin, as members of that same world to which God sent his Son, not to condemn it, but to save it. Thanks be to God. Let us stand and offer the words of our confession in that somewhat arcane and hard to believe Apostles' Creed. Do your best. <laughs> I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You may be seated.